Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Accenture overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. When Sweet Tarts dared to combine sweet and tart, they thought, why stop there? Why not create other exciting and unexpected combinations, like rainbows and ropes, or fruity and gummy, or chewy and more chewy? That's why they created fun treats like Sweet Tarts Twisted Rainbow Ropes, Gummies Fruity Splits, and Chewy Fusions. When you dare to combine, it's sure to blow your mind. Sweet Tarts, dare to combine. Visit SweetTartsCandy.com to shop now. Hello and welcome to The Rest is Money with me, Robert Peston. And me, Steph McGovern. How are you, Steph? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I've been doing loads of fun things with my little four-year-old who's getting funnier and funnier by the day. I suspect more fun than being at a party conference, Robert. Yeah, I find them relentless. I've been doing them for years. I think I may have said this last week. They've just become one big, slightly alcohol-infused blur. I'm always relieved to see the back of them. It's also, I mean, you'll completely get this just being... A very odd time to be here. Yeah. You know, as a Jew, I'm finding everybody, I mean, you don't have to be a Jew to find the events in Israel absolutely horrifying and upsetting. Mm. And what's happened there has got massive ramifications, actually, for the whole world. I suspect we will be talking about those ramifications probably in another podcast at the moment. We're all focused on the horror and what can be done to bring some kind of respite and, and some kind of reconciliation. But there'll be lots of ramifications we'll need to talk about in other episodes, but not today. Yes. We are, however, going to talk about what has been said at the uh, Labour Party conference this week, aren't we? We'll be talking about particularly what Rachel Reeves has been saying, looking like she might be uh, the first female chancellor in the next election. We'll see. So we'll be talking about that, won't we? Also, I'm really interested in what's happening in the plant-based food industry at the minute and how companies like Beyond Meat have gone from having valuations of like $12 billion and loads of optimism to plummeting stock values and gloomy outlooks. We're going to talk about Metro Bank as well, aren't we, Robert? Lots of anxiety around the place about its financial troubles. What is the future of Metro Bank? What are the implications for other banks? So obviously, that's an important subject for us to get our teeth stuck into. And then I think we're going to address a few questions that you've sent us. But shall we kick off with Labour's economic policy, how it would govern in an economic and business sense after the 
election. What, what struck you about it, Steph? Um, well, you know, so it was Rachel Reeves' big speech, wasn't it? And, you know, lots of people are saying she could be the next chancellor, the first ever female in 800 years. And she mentioned that in the speech as well. And of course, she's got really interesting background being a, an economist at the Bank of England. And she's currently got the backing of the former governor, Mark Carney. But in terms of what she said, I think for me, she kept talking about economic security, didn't she? In fact, she called her plan Securonomics. Yeah, one of the worst phrases ever invented. Securonomics. <laughs> yes. I think she may have lots of other virtues, but I think that's a phrase best forgotten. Yeah, she's probably jumping ahead before it becomes Reevonomics, or you know, like everyone gets an anomics put at the end of their names, don't they? When whenever they come up with a economic I always, policy, I always turn down pestonomics. It was suggested to me on many occasions <laughs> at the BBC, and we've rejected pestonomics. When I worked with Steph Flanders, when I was Steph Flanders producer at the BBC before you. We had Stephanomics and it totally worked because there were two of us called Steph. So uh, there we are. <laughs> anyway, back to what was said at the uh, conference. So, I mean, basically we heard about how strict she's going to be. She, you know, talked about this ironclad fiscal discipline. You know, she's not going to give anything away. So we're not going to see big tax cuts or plans for big spending. And instead, growth is going to come from kind of supply side reforms, isn't it? Speeding up infrastructure products really going to town on planning reforms. You know, we heard a lot from Kia Starmer as well, talking about housing and changing the planning laws, you know, looking at building on potentially green belt sites that they wouldn't have built on before. And growth is going to come from this big build. And there was there was a total Thatcher vibe, wasn't there, to uh, Rachel's speech? I mean, you were there. What, what did you take from it? Yeah, it was um, pretty blatant, the putting on the sort of Margaret Thatcher clothes. It was quite, I mean, I thought it was quite Amusing because you'll remember that last summer during the leadership contest to become Tory leader and our Prime Minister Liz Truss engaged in what was described as Thatcher cosplay. Um, <laughs> and then her economic policy, many would argue, or her economic approach when she became Prime Minister, many would argue was in a sense a travesty of what Margaret Thatcher would have done because although Margaret Thatcher was intent and indeed succeeded over 10 years in cutting taxes, Margaret Thatcher did put sound money and strong public finances ahead of all her other economic priorities. And she you know, took the view that stability, particularly in the public finances, was the foundation for doing all the other things she wanted to do, like cut taxes and cut public spending. And, you know, Liz Truss did pretty much the opposite with Quasi Kwarteng. And in their notorious mini budget, she made these so-called unfunded tax cuts. In other words, she borrowed money to cut taxes. And the rest is appalling history with bond prices, UK government debts, tumbling interest rates, rising, bequeathing her successors, Sunak and Hunt, a bit of a mess to clear up. So it was striking to me that Rachel Reeves was saying that she totally rejects the trust approach and she will do what she regards as the true Thatcher approach, which is mending the public finances before she does anything else. And to be clear, this imperative of restoring confidence of international investors in the debt issued by the government is more important than ever. Globally, for rich countries, and this is led by the US, we have seen a fall in government bond prices, a rise in government bond yields. And the simple point is that when government bond yields rise, that is 
a rise in the interest rate that governments have to pay. And therefore, at the moment, irrespective of anything the British government is doing, it has to pay more to borrow. And if Labour wins the election in a year's time, the likelihood it is it will still be paying 5% to borrow for 30 years. And that means that the interest bill for the government will remain very large indeed, you know, depending on forecasts anywhere between, I don't know, 80 and 120 billion pounds a year, simply on interest. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because the last time Labour came back into power after a long run of not being back in 97, they said then they'd keep control, you know, really tight control over public finances. But that was when GDP was at four and a half percent, wasn't it? And this year we're looking at half a percent. Yeah, I mean, the average growth rate from 92 to 2007 was three percent a year. The underlying growth rate is about a third of that now, about one percent this year. We're as you say, current forecasts say growth is currently running about half percent a year, which is just a fraction of the kind of growth rate that Gordon Brown inherited. I mean, he did put on a sort of hair shirt to prove again to markets that he would exercise discipline with the public finances. But the, the overall economic environment was so much better for him. Growth was strong. You know, he also had assets to sell. I, you'll remember this, the spectrum for mobile phones was available to sell. And he raised tens and tens and tens of billions of pounds by auctioning that to mobile phone companies. Rachel Reeves will neither inherit a benign environment when it comes to growth and tax revenues, nor assets that she can sell to raise vast amounts of money. So it's a very, it will be a very difficult set of circumstances for the person who, as you say, may well be the first. It is an extraordinary thing, isn't it? In 800 years, no woman has been Chancellor of the Exchequer. It is astonishing, isn't it? It's absolutely astonishing and a total joke. Uh, That's never been the case. Maybe we might have been in a better position had more women been in charge of the finances over the years as well, because we all know that it's the women who I reckon, behind the scenes quite often, who are the ones who know what's going on with the money more than anyone else. She did this thing, which again was very Thatcherite in her speech of talking about how, you know, her strongest childhood memories is of her mum going through bank statements and making sure money wasn't being wasted or they weren't being ripped off. I mean, another line in her speech was very much how she would be much more careful with avoiding fraud compared to all those COVID frauds that this government has endured. So I think it's very important to recognise that the corollary of this, you know, mess in the public finances is our low growth problem. She hasn't got tax revenues. And so she's really in this bind, which is any party wants to offer hope to the British electorate and indeed to their members. I mean, it is one of the things that's, you know, very striking is around Britain, how people have become very demoralised about our prospects for our public services, about more than anything else, prospects for their living standards. And it is a remarkable thing a year before the election to see a chancellor and indeed a leader of the Labour Party stand up and say, we've got plans for the long term, but actually what we're offering you in terms of short-term respite is pretty limited. Yes, he came up with and actually this was just a repeat of stuff we've already heard, with really quite bold plans, as you mentioned, to reform planning, increase the number of houses built every year, 
to 300,000 or so. And if he's successful, let's be clear, house building will deliver a a boost to growth and prosperity. But these sorts of measures don't kick in in terms of making us feel better off very fast, not in weeks and months. You know, they tend to have an impact over years. And it is quite striking to hear the opposition party really trying to sell itself on the basis of jam tomorrow rather than jam today. Now, that may change over the next few months. They may feel forced to make promises of goodies sort of sooner than than that. But it, it is striking and unusual to have so little promised at this stage that can give people absolute confidence that their living standards will improve. On the, um, to do with the house building though, I was looking at how many houses we are building at the moment. And it, the last figures for last year were like something like 230,000 new homes. The year before that, I think was a bit more. So 300,000 houses a year doesn't feel like a lot more, like this whole big headline figure of 1.5 million in the next five years. At first I thought, oh, and then actually it doesn't feel like that many. And, you know, what kind of houses are we talking about? I know Angela Rain has been talking about more affordable housing and things like that, but it will be down to the the house builders, won't it, in terms of where they think they're going to get the money? There's one of the things that's very clear is that government's going to be much more interventionist than the current government. And um, But can they be in terms of... You know, it, we're in a free market, aren't we, with housing? So how much are they going to be able to control well, it? And- well, I think part of the problem is it's not such a free market because of all the planning constraints. And therefore, you know, you can put in place measures which say, you know, we will allow you to develop this very important plot of land. And they're talking about new towns as well you know, in return for binding commitments that there will be, you know, this much social housing, this much relatively affordable housing, schools and the rest. So it is one of those areas where governments, if they choose to exercise it, can impose really quite strict requirements on developers. Um, I think one of the points you're making is we haven't yet got the detail from Labour, and that is true. We haven't got the detail. And so we will need to see how much more they're prepared to say in the year before the general election. But just on your other point, though, If you look at the last five years, 300,000 is a very significant increase over the average over the past five years. House building is, even though this is a government that says it's committed to it, and it has been. I mean, in fact, I think quite a lot of estimates say that what the UK really needs to try and get supply and demand imbalance is over 400,000 houses built a year. And and, and obviously, Labour recognises that increasing to that amount will be a challenge. But it, there is no, if they manage to build 1.5 million, that is a very significant increase on the amounts that have been built still not in this parliament, but still yeah. potentially not enough. Yeah. Well, we could talk about what was said and the details we need to hear and all that for another hour, but should we move on and have a look at uh, some of the other topics that have caught our eye? And I, and I was trying to think of some clever link between house building and the subject that you're particularly interested in, which is <laughs> plant-based food. You know, we, we should have done a segue about green building or something, and then maybe we could have got ourselves more seamlessly into it. But I think we're just going to have to do what, what we call in the uh, the media industry a handbrake turn. Yeah. So t- tell me about what's interesting you about what was for a period quite a growing industry. Yeah, it's fascinating. This, this is the, the, the problem is that the companies who make plant-based foods are having, do you know, I actually find the term plant-based triggering because when I had a pregnancy sickness, which was horrendous, I once threw up in the plant-based aisle of a supermarket 
And so when I see the word plant-based now, I'm like, oh, anyway, so I digress. Uh, so there's, uh, there's been this growing demand, hasn't there, for meat alternatives of, as we've become pretty much obsessed with getting healthy and being more sustainable. And, and I am one of those people because I've got uh, IBS, which is obviously all to do with my guts and my bowels and everything else. And uh, I did a, a test of my gut as part of a TV show to see what my gut health was like. And it turns out I'm in the worst third of the population for my diversity of my guts, my gut microbiome. So I went on this whole, and this sounds really wanky, wellness journey to try and sort my guts out. And it did work. I've I've now increased my diversity and it's a lot better and I'm in control of it now, which is great because it means when I'm broadcasting, I don't have to worry about where the loser. are. Too much information. Okay, one less thing for me to worry about now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's all about sharing on this podcast, isn't it? Anyway, a big part of this has been about eating more plants. And so that's what I've been trying to do as part of increasing my diversity. But it turns out that there's a big problem with this because lots of the products made by the biggest players in the market are not as healthy as you might think because of the processes they go through and the chemicals that are added to make them like meat alternatives. So essentially they're ultra processed, a word which has been in the headlines loads, hasn't it? Because everyone's concerned about ultra processing being really unhealthy for you. Uh, it's best explained with an example in all of this. So you've got a company called Beyond Meat, who will have seen their stuff in the supermarkets if you've never had them before. You, you, you'll know who they are. So they make plant-based meat substitutes that are designed to look, taste, and cook like real meat. So they'll make like burgers and sausages from pea protein and that type of thing. It was a company that was founded in California. It had amazing backers like Bill Gates and his wife, Melinda, Leonardo DiCaprio put money into the business as well. So, it, you know, it got a really amazing investment and marketing and everything was looking fab for it. And then they listed in 2019. And since then, they've seen their share price come down 92% for various reasons. So what, what, why have investors fallen out of love with Beyond Meat? Well, they've been sued for various things now. So they had a run-in with their investors who felt misled about their growth plans. And then on top of that, they were sued by some of their customers who said that they'd been misled about how much protein was actually in these products. So they were saying that Beyond Meat had overstated their protein. And at the same time, you've had all these headlines coming out saying that plant-based and meat alternative food is actually ultra-processed. And that is not good for you. I mean, I was talking to a gastroenterologist about this who was saying that the biggest problem she sees through her work is people who have chronic illnesses because of all the ultra processed food they eat. And she's also a chef now. She won Master Chef back in 2017, uh, Dr. Sally, as she's called. But she was saying that the biggest issue for her is she has seen the result of all the ultra processed food are eating. So obviously this has hammered the plant-based sector. And you've had like even the founder of Beyond Meat has come out and said that the percentage of customers who think that plant-based meats were healthy has now fallen from like 50% to 38%. So they are battling with that now. There's lots of other companies as well, Impossible Foods. That's another one. They've seen their sales fall. They keep putting off their public listing. And now they're all trying to like ramp up their marketing. They're, they're working with scientific institutes and stuff. So can I ask you a question about this? Because the one thing we haven't talked about, I mean, we've talked about the health issue and plainly, if these foods are ultra processed and not good for you, then that's plainly a problem for any manufacturer. But one of the big drives towards vegan food 
was that it was supposed to be better when it came to global warming, because as we've talked about before, meat production is a great source of greenhouse gases. Um, there's a huge debate going on about the extent to which in general, we've all got to become less dependent on meat. And just to be clear, therefore, is it not possible to market this stuff simply on the basis that it's better from the environment? Well, there are still concerns about the environment side of this as well, because it takes a lot of water and land to kind of grow the, the plant side of things too. Not, It's not as bad as meat, but it's still perhaps not as good as people might think. But they are trying to now market on other things. So they're trying to market on areas where they are better than the meat to try and win people around because for example there was they got hammered by this thing that the uh, that was at the Super Bowl there was a an ad shown in the Super Bowl obviously which would have hundreds of millions of viewers and it was kids trying to spell one of the chemicals that you get as a it's like a binding agent in a lot of these plant-based foods and it was kids trying to spell it and the idea being if you know if your kids can't spell it you shouldn't be eating it so they're, they're trying to like come back from all of these things but on top of all this, it's basic economics as well as costs. So there was some data that came out from Nielsen that said, on average, plant-based meals, the meat alternative to beef, twice as expensive. They're, so twice as expensive as actual beef products. Is yeah, what you're saying, and right. four times as expensive as chicken, three times as expensive as pork per pound. So they're battling with costs as well. And I know you love, for example, Oatly, don't you? That's your, your you love an Oatly oat milk. Yeah, all right. Um, this is, is going to be <laughs> one of those conversations that alienates lots of listeners. Yes, it is certainly the case that I like a flat white coffee, but I am a bit peculiar or particular, sorry, about the milk, the oat milk that I choose. And I do prefer that particular brand. That is true. Oatly are really interesting as well, because when they started out, they had like Oprah Winfrey invested in them. They were flying high. and But since they've gone public, again, they've seen their, their share price tank and Again, looking at the health side of this, they've got, you know, added sugar and less protein than cow's milk. So a lot of that has been headlined. However, they're trying to fight back and say, yes, but we've got less saturated fat and fewer calories and that type of thing. And then on top of that is all the costs. So these companies are just having a, a real shitty time for want of a better word. You're using a lot of technical language today, Steph. Um, the, <laughs> uh, is there any company in this sector vegan or a version of you know more climate friendly healthier mm, yeah that seems to be doing well well there's this really cool stuff that's happening in labs in america at the minute which haven't fully come out yet so for example mm. there's this amazing cardiologist called uma valetti who mm -hmm. started a company called upside and upside foods yeah. and They've come up with this idea of what's called cultivated meat. So this guy, Uma, you're probably thinking, why is a cardiologist making meat? So basically, mm. he was working at the Mayo Clinic, obviously right. an incredible you know, institute in America, yeah. medical institute, growing human heart cells in a lab. And from this, he thought, well, why can't we you know, grow our own meat? The idea being, you know, you can take cells from an animal with a yep. with a biopsy and then feed them nutrients so they proliferate and then from this it will produce meat which is really interesting because 
then that takes away all the kind of land and environment issues, doesn't it? So how close to market are they, do you know? Well, so at the moment you've got, in Singapore, for example, it is already, you can get cultivated meat there. So I think it's something like they import a hell of a lot of food in Singapore. So they've been looking at ways to try and you know create their own. And so you can actually eat cultivated meat in Singapore. In terms of America at the minute, the FDA there have just approved a cultivated chicken, but there's still a lot of bureaucracy around this and it's got a few more loops to jump through and then yeah it could be potentially on the market in the next few years and and so that is really interesting and also what's funny is because all of this is going on there's loads of industrial espionage where (laughs) people are sending people into the labs you know secretly to try and i don't know how you know could, could come in and test your meter or whatever while they're there have a look at what's going on because it could potentially be a huge industry. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. So look, I'm going to go off and have a cultivated bacon sandwich and we should have a short break, shouldn't we? Yeah. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Welcome back to The Rest is Money with me, Robert Peston. And me, Steph McGovern. So we've both been gripped partly because of our sort of history of being close observers of problems in the banking industry. We have both been gripped by events at Metro Bank, which has had to raise an awful lot of money to survive. Tell us what's been happening. Yeah, so we found out this week, haven't we, that Metro Bank, which has um, between two and a half and three million customers, and it's got about £15 billion worth of deposits on its books. It's got 76 branches. So not one of the biggest banks, but still one of the banks that came through in the financial crisis as a challenger bank, has been saved from potential financial ruin by a Colombian billionaire. Tell us a bit about the rescue. How much money have they raised? What form? Yeah, so it's over 300 million uh, that they needed to raise. And uh, this Colombian billionaire has put in 102 million. It's a fella called Jaime Galinsky Bacal. Apparently, he's a big household name in Colombia. He's known for buying up struggling lenders and then turning their fortunes around. He's worth something like $4 billion. And interestingly, he had a big stake in TSB's owner, Banco Sabadell. Uh, and he's done stuff with George Soros as well, privatized uh, Colombia's biggest lender there. And But he's been interested in Metro Bank for some time. He had a smaller stake in it. He managed to get his daughter on the board. But now he's come in full swing to have a 53% share in the business off the back of this deal. But I found Metro Bank fascinating because I remember when it started. So it was founded in 2010. And that was obviously just after we'd been covering the financial crisis. And it was founded by two guys, Vernon Hill is this kind of flamboyant American guy and Anthony Thompson, who's a Geordie. And uh, yeah, founded in 2010. And it was the first high street bank to be given a license in the UK in 150 years. So I remember it was a big deal. And 
I was invited down to go and spend some time with Vernon and Anthony in the branch. I think it was their first branch, the one in Holborn, in, in central London. And they, they really stood out, didn't they? They had those sort of garish, is it red and blue, the colours? Yeah, it was um, red and they did, blue. They didn't look like a traditional bank in any... Sh- yeah. I mean, they looked more like a burger bar or something, but anyway. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they did. And also their big thing was about the branch, you know. It was all about what customers can get in the branch. It was They made a big thing about it being open for long hours, that it's seven days a week. You can go in without an appointment. Yeah, but, but it was remarkable. The fact that you can go, go to a branch on a Sunday. I mean, you were lucky in the history of British banking to be able to go on a weekday to a bank, to a bank yeah. branch. It was, in, in terms of making banking more accessible, it was it was quite an important innovation. Yeah, it was, it was. And I mean, there were loads of other things as well. Like you could get, you know, if you lost your card, you could go in and they'd print you one there and then. I mean, we've all been there when we've either had a card cloned or stolen and you have to wait two weeks before you get a new card. So they were really good at that fast in-store service. service. Yeah, and you know, I remember they were really keen to show me like the dog bowls that they had in there with dog biscuits and water in and things like that. So they were all about, you know, making it at this heart of the community vibe. And I mean, Vernon Hill was interesting. He, he was like so a very flamboyant guy. There were lots of stories about them being a bit dodgy though. What was all that about? Yes. I mean, he's been part of several banks where he's had to leave under a bit of a cloud he actually ended up leaving Metrobank as chairman in, in 2019 because of an a, accounting scandal. And, and seemingly he is he's currently under another dark cloud in a US bank, but it's the one here at Metrobank that caused all the trouble, didn't it? And it was classic bank mess, really. And it goes to the heart of stuff about banking that is sort of mind-boggling for people who don't know about how banks run. Basically... In order to keep our money safe, regulators, in the case of the UK, that's the Bank of England, insist that banks have capital in their balance sheets that is there to absorb losses if the bank's loans go bad. Mm. And the reason that capital is there is to protect depositors. It's a buffer, you know, because nobody would deposit money in a bank because deposits are effectively loans to the bank, if they thought there was a risk, they wouldn't get their money back. And bank runs, and you know, one of the things that got me some prominence in the UK was my reporting on the woes at Northern Rock when there was a run. And the reason pe- people took their money out of Northern Rock is because they were worried that those deposits would be lost. And in the case of Northern Rock, one of the things Northern Rock did wrong is it had way too little capital relative to the vast loans it had made. Now, this is where it genuinely gets complicated. The amount of capital that any bank has to hold in its balance sheet is related to the riskiness of the loans that it makes. So historically, mortgages have been regarded as less risky because mortgages are secured on an asset, your house, and straightforward unsecured business loans are regarded as very risky because if it's an unsecured business loan, There is no asset there for the bank to seize if the borrower can't repay the loan. Now, the thing that Metro Bank got wrong, which came to the fore in 2019, was that the way that it was assessing the riskiness of its loans was regarded by the regulator as wrong. And that therefore, because of the way that it thought its loans were less risky than the regulator, it was holding less capital 
as a buffer against things going wrong than it should have done. So in 2019, this first round of problems, you know, it was told you haven't got enough capital, you've got to raise capital. And capital comes from shareholders and it comes from other big investors in the forms of various sorts of bond. And the point about all of this capital is it only counts as capital if you, the provider of the capital, are prepared to take losses when things go bad. Yeah. Now, the extraordinary thing about where we are today is that Metro Bank was continuing to develop what's known as its own internal model of how to assess the riskiness of these loans. And the regulator at the end of the day has said, we still don't think you are holding enough capital relative to these loans. And that's why it got quite close to being in really deep trouble, mm. but it has raised this money. And the important point for anybody listening who's a Metro Bank customer is the Bank of England has put out a statement saying that Metro Bank has now raised sufficient capital and it's you know it's back to being a safe bank again. But yeah. there are, you know, but inevitably there are always those days running up to the capital actually being raised where people get anxious, understandably yeah. anxious, that this is no longer a sound bank. Yeah. So they've essentially bought themselves some time, haven't they? But I, I wonder, does their model work? Because, you know, we've talked about how great it was that they have these branches. But if you look at the, you know, figures on bank branches now, like almost three-fifths of UK bank branches have closed over the last nine years. And I was looking at Metro Bank's kind of where their branches are, because I always think of them as being like a kind of southern bank, and because they are, you know, they don't have any bank branches north of Bradford. I know they're now have plans to open 11 more but a lot of them are in big cities and you know is it going to work well it's quite interesting isn't it i saw that mr bacall has said that he thinks the branch model works he's made statements that he wants there to be more branches and i think you know that there are definitely you know british customers who would rather go to a bank go to a branch bricks and mortar outlet yeah. when doing sort of important banking but you hit on obviously you know, one of the most important industrial questions at the moment, which is all the innovation is currently going through digital banks, you know, Monzo, Revolut. Yeah. There's, a, there's, a, there's a raft of these new generation of challenger bank, you know, that are totally online and in many cases offer an amazing service. Yeah. And also, I, I think you're right. There are still people who want to go into bank branches. You know, we often talk about how the older generation now particularly struggle. They want to do face-to-face -face banking. I was in my bank branch not that long ago and was waiting in the queue. And there were several people in front of me who were doing transactions that I would just do on the, you know, on my phone now. And But they were mu very much wanting to be there to do it. And with the, you know, older people who were trying to do it with bits of ID and everything else and get written down what their bank balance was. And you can see that. So the, the interesting thing about Metro Bank is that this new owner, he is basically in control. You know, what are you saying about wanting more branches? And it's interesting. It's quite a big business risk. They would be taking because branches are expensive. Where you get the economies of scale are in, you know, the digital, in a sense, back office. One of the reasons why these new digital, you know, digital only banks are so efficient is their cost base is a fraction of what any bank, you know, has to pay staff you know, and, and pay rents and pay business rates, you know, has to, uh, you know, has, has to incur. And if you just look at what the big banks, the highest, you know, the big High street banks have been doing. They've all been closing branches because branches are expensive. Yeah. You know, th there are definitely economies of scale in getting as many customers as you can. There are definitely not economies of scale in terms of opening branches. 
But you could sort of see a situation, certainly in which the political background would be positive for them, since one of the most important problems we face as a country is the decline of our high streets. Um, and certainly, I think any bank that said it wanted to open more branches, particularly in our ailing high streets, would get an enormous amount of political support. But as a business, it's not obvious to me that there is a proper business there. Mm. But I guess if it becomes, if it is like a community hub, because now the high street is very much about experiential stuff. We talked about this in the mm. very first episode of this podcast when I was talking about the slime business that I've invested in. And they do well out of the fact that they provide, you know, something for the kids to do for a couple of hours mm. while the parents go off and do other jobs. And you you think like with Metro Bank, you know, given they do have the dog balls and they do have all these other things. Put the slime in there. Just put the slime <laughs> in the branch. Uh, yeah, we've got the perfect model. We've, let's, I think we should take out, we should take out, frankly, in, you know, intellectual property protection on this idea. Now it's uh, the Steph and Rob yeah, all right, all right. big multi-trillion-dollar venture. You could see though cafes in banks that would help them. You could, you know, do they just need to think more out of the box? And yeah, you're right, they're really expensive branches. Do we even need them? But if we're still talking about, there are some people out there who would. Maybe you make more of it by no, exactly, making exactly, them more exactly. experienced. Anyway, I'm sure we'll come back to that. But um, should we have a look at some of the questions you've sent in? So uh, just to remind you, if you do want to send us a question, it's restismoney at gmail.com. Or you can find us on all the usual social media places like Instagram and X and TikTok. And it's the rest is money for those. So just have a look for us. But let's have a look at some of the questions that have come in. So I'm quite interested in this one, which has come from Paul Malian. It's about private school fees, mm. VAT, because of course we heard this week that Labour have said uh, if they get into power, they'll end the tax loophole, which exempts private schools from VAT and business rates. So Paul's question is, has anyone modelled the number of children per local authority who will leave the private sector and need a state place versus the number of state places available? This feels like an unasked question of labour policy. So it's interesting this because obviously we're, you know, we wait until you detail on all of it in terms of what schools will do when they are slapped with this 20% tax on fees. We're yet to see whether they pass it on to the parents, but people are assuming they will pass it on to parents. So parents will now, uh, if Labour get into power and this comes in, will have to pay 20% extra. Now, the Independent Schools Council, who basically are the, the trade body for all of the private schools, they've put out some figures on this and they've said they reckon it'll force 40,000 pupils out of the private school system, which is about a fifth of those currently attending, they say. Although I, I think the number's higher than that. But anyway, so they're saying that'll force them out. But, you know, is that a bad thing? I didn't go to private school myself. I know you didn't either. No, we're both champions of comprehensives. And yes. As you know, we've got, you know, got my charity, which is all about helping comprehensive schools, speakers for schools, little plug there. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, I do a lot of work with uh, schools in the northeast as well. And I think there is a question of what's the problem there if, they, if you know, there are more people in, in the state schools. Yes, there's a, a funding element to all of this. But as we've heard Labour saying, they'll say that this, this money that they make from the VAT rate and the business rates on it will help the 93% of children who are in state schools. There's one other final point that is worth making on this, which is the one thing that Labour has said it's not going to do is it's not going to abolish the charitable status 
of schools. That means that schools that have the capacity to raise donations, and they will now put enormous effort into raising donations. And remember that that, that involves an, a really generous gift aid tax break, right? Having charitable status is an enormous tax break. If some of those schools then raise significant sums of money and then give assisted places to underprivileged kids, Actually, this point that's raised by, you know, Paul Malian, you know, the numbers being forced out of independent schools would be lesser because some of these independent schools would be offering more places as a result of these charitable donations. So there's lots of moving parts here. Yeah, but I, I mean, I, just to clarify, I don't have a problem with there being private schools. You know, whatever, if you want to send your kids to private schools, that's fine. But they're not the they're not necessarily the best place for kids. I just think they've got their own issues going on. And it's like, we just think so much about academics. Yeah, yeah I, I, you and I agree about this. Yeah. yeah, we just keep focusing on academics and I just think there's way more to it than that. It's about preparation for life. Yeah, and it shouldn't just be yeah. that, that that's the best place to send your kids. For some it is, but I'm just saying it's not for everyone and we shouldn't silo everything. Totally agree with you. I think you know you and I agree on this. So Jamie Hill has asked, what do you think about Argentina using borrowed Chinese money to pay off debt from the IMF? I've read it described as a swap line. What does that term mean? Um, let me kick off explaining what a swap line means then. So, so this is an agreement between two countries' central banks to exchange currencies temporarily. So basically, if you've got country A, needs some currency from country B to stabilize their economy or support it in some way, the central banks of both countries will then agree to swap their currencies at an agreed rate and, you know, in return, country B gets to strengthen their economic ties or it facilitates trade or it enhances their international influence or whatever else. And in the case of Argentina and China, this has been going on for years, hasn't it? This is They first did this back in 2009, I think it was, when um, Argentina managed to get a lot of Chinese yen. And I mean, there's a lot of secrecy around it as well. But, you know, as you say that they're using it now to to repay some of this IMF debt and, and to pay for imports as, as well. But what do you make of it, Robert? So I think the biggest story is just the mess that Argentina is in. This is not the first time the, the Argentinian economy has been a terrible mess. They got incredibly high inflation. They got this massive debt to the International Monetary Fund. In a way, one of the things that's more extraordinary is that the International Monetary Fund has not imposed tougher conditions on the management or on the government of Argentina and the way that it manages the Argentinian economy, um, which it normally would do given that the IMF has already provided tens and tens of billions of dollars of loans to Argentina. And actually, in terms of accidents that may befall the global economy, Argentina being unable to repay its debts is a big one at the moment, a big risk that's out there, which would shake confidence. There is sort of big power politics going on here. So it's certainly unusual for a country to use essentially money borrowed from one country, China. China's got huge ambitions in terms of leadership in the global economy, but it's unusual for a country to borrow from an economy like China and then use those proceeds to pay off the provider effectively of emergency support, the IMF. So this, this in itself was a very striking thing. But what it points to is this sort of power play, struggle between the IMF 
on the one hand, China on the other. There is this idea that somehow the IMF is somehow being sort of more lenient on Argentina than it would be because it doesn't want Argentina to fall too much under the sway mm. of China. And so this is all about huge power politics and is just about, frankly, how globalization has really broken up into these different now sources of power. You've got China on the one hand connected to Russia. Uh, you've got America and Europe on the other. We don't have the kind, any, unfortunately, of sort of global coordination that we need when it comes to these global problems, one of which being the kind of debt issue that we're talking about. Yeah. And as it um, runs through everything, it's that sense isn't it that if the reason it matters to us in the uk is because of that you know it only takes one one of these big countries to sneeze and we catch a cold which was the analogy that was so often used wasn't it during the financial crisis so yeah i'm sure we'll be talking about all of this again uh, but should we wrap things up i, I think we should we, we left people on a, on a cheerful note yeah. <laughs> or perhaps not but it's certainly important stuff and we'll look forward to talking about all these really huge things that are affecting all our lives again next week. Yeah. In the meantime, I've got to go and interview Donny Osmond now. Oh, you've got to interview Donny Osmond. I've got to interview um, Sir Keir Starmer. Um, ah. it'll, be interesting, it'll, be, it'll, be, it'll be interesting to see later. Which, which turns out to be the more enjoyable interview. Yeah. Excellent. Right. Thanks again, everyone. Uh, just a reminder of those questions, restismoney at gmail.com. And we will speak to you next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>